Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. And before we begin, I just want to pray once more. So if you would, let's bow together. Uh, Father God, uh, this morning, uh, we ask that you would help our hearts, help our hearts to see the beauty of your salvation uh, and where they have grown cold, where we have become hopeless, where we have become prideful, God, where we have given up, Lord, we ask that you would shine the light of salvation so brightly on our hearts that our uh, desire for you and your glory, it would be comprehensively changed. It would change the direction of our lives and the affection of our hearts from now until Jesus comes back. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Now, I am a creature of habit. My day starts by snoozing my alarm, and I wake up nine minutes later. I quickly get dressed. I brush my teeth. I run upstairs. If it's cold, I start my car to melt the frost on it. I come back in, and I grab all of my children's backpacks and shoes. I put them by the door. I fill up their water bottles. I make sure their lunches get in their bags. I help my kids with their hair or with making good decisions about what kind of jacket they might need. I gently argue with my youngest son about why he has to go to school at all. Uh, And I convince him that today will be a fun day with the friends. Uh, And then I grab my coffee. I pour protein powder into a blender bottle and I hurry my kids out the door. We have to leave by 7.52 or they will be late. And we do that every Monday through Friday. And that's just the things like before I leave the driveway um, every Monday through Friday. (laughs) And when I get to work, when I get home after, there are more patterns in my life, more routines, more habits, and many times I fall into all of them as if I'm on a predetermined path. Are you a creature of habit? Your days and weeks have a predictable flow and shape. Uh, from when you wake up to what you eat, to what you wear, to the coffee shop you visit, and what you order, and if you tip, <laughs> to the tasks you accomplish each day at work or in the home, what your time winding down at night looks, night looks like, and when, when bedtime is, and what your routine is like that gets you there. Do you do this over and over and over without fail? Probably most people. Because we're all creatures of habit. We order our lives around these patterns. This is normal. And sometimes we do it to bring stability to our lives or to reduce anxieties. We make plans uh, each day to care for our needs and the needs of others. These things are necessary. You know, we, uh, some things, some examples are that it's good to get the right amount of sleep. It's good to exercise. It's good to pray before meals and before bedtimes with your children if you have them. These are good patterns. And one thing about patterns, though, is that um, they're not very easy to start and they're not very easy to change. If a pattern exists long enough in your life, it will take great effort or an existential force applied to you uh, in order for you to change it. 
And so we collectively experienced one of these existential forces. It disrupted all of our patterns. I'm going there, daylight savings time. It happened last week. We're still feeling it, right? And uh, it's just one hour. It's just one hour, right, guys? And yet, it takes people many, many, many days to recover from it. Their whole sleep cycle is shifted, and we have a nationwide jet lag. There's a statistical uptick in car accidents, heart attacks, and depression following the time change. Now, there are many good patterns in our life. But because of the reality of sin in this world, our lives are also characterized by sinful patterns. Patterns that are not good for us or for others. Our thoughts, behaviors, actions, habits, and our patterns are all stained by sin. And truly, without intervention, it is impossible to change. And yet change is what we need. And so an intervention is what we need. And as Jesus is talking about his sin-defeating salvation to the crowds in Luke chapter 18, he says, what is impossible with God, with man, is possible with God. That's Luke 18, 27. And this morning, we are diving into the message and ministry, not of Jesus, but of John the Baptist, as he prepares people for the seemingly impossible change that Jesus Christ will bring. And our big idea for today is that God's salvation is for those who repent of their sins. And we'll see three things in there. We'll see that repentance is a gift given through God's word and spirit. We'll see that repentance is comprehensive, life-changing, and visible. And we'll see that repentance is humbling and it prepares us for life in Christ's kingdom. So as we get into these points, uh, one more time today, I want to read our passage in full. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled. And every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. 
And whoever has food is to do likewise. And tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, But teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, Are we? And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As we first get into this passage, I'm reminded of how Luke began this gospel account. In Luke chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, he said, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke's passage today, as we open it up, it, it reads like a history lesson. It's an orderly account. That's what he's giving. Real names, times, and places. You can check the receipts. It's all there. And so Luke 3, 1 to 2, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Luke setting the scene, locating us in a time and in a place, giving us a cast and setting up a very interesting contrast. A contrast between the powerful people and a voice in the wilderness. Between the places of power, places like Rome and the temple, and a man in the desert, A contrast between those who have it all and someone who appears to have nothing, that yet John the Baptist possesses a treasure far greater than anything. Because John knows that God's salvation is for those who repent of their sin, and that repentance is a gift given through God's word and his spirit. Now, Rome... At this time, it's conquered many lands. It has a vast and a sprawling empire. Tiberius Caesar rules over it all, but governors are appointed in different areas to maintain order so that Rome can keep what it has conquered. And this is Pontius Pilate's job. He's the governor. And still, more leaders are needed at a local level. And this is where the tetrarchs come in. Uh, They're like mayors. Uh, They are Jewish in their background, but they're very, very fond of Roman power and money and prestige. And along with the political system of the day, the Jewish people in these areas are part of a religious tradition where priests and high priests and their disciples, they occupy a really unique spiritual leadership in the lives of the everyday people. And against the backdrop of this caste of the rich and the famous and the powerful, We have John, the guy in the desert. But John has something that the powerful people of his day do not. Actually, he has two things. He has the Holy Spirit, and he has the Word of God. When we first hear about John the Baptist in Luke 1, an angel comes to John's father and tells him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. 
and he must not drink strong drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the holy spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of israel to the lord their god and he will go before him in the spirit and power of elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the lord a people prepared So when we're told about John, what we find out is that he has a mission and he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. In the Old Testament scriptures, we normally see that the prophets are temporarily filled with the Holy Spirit at unique times and for unique purposes. But John is different. He is continually filled with the Holy Spirit from before his birth. Why is this important? What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. It brings us comfort, directs us. It causes us to desire to obey God, enables us to understand his word, and the Holy Spirit empowers us with spiritual gifts. At this time, and with the Spirit of God living in him, John is unique among men. He's unique for all sorts of reasons. But chief among them is the power of the Holy Spirit working in John. John's actions and his preaching, all that he is, it's all influenced and empowered by the Spirit. Now John has the Spirit, but he also has the Word of God. At the end of Luke 3.2, it says, The Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. It didn't come to Caesar, or Pilate, or Herod, or Lysanias, or Annas, or Philip, or Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the insignificant character on the list. That's the one that God used. And this should be great encouragement to any of us who feel like we're the insignificant ones. God sees people differently. And the most significant thing about you is how God sees you. That idea becomes even more powerful when we see how Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Let God's definition of your significance be the only one that matters. And so against all expectations, the word of God came to John. He's given a message and he's given a mission. In Luke 3, 3, it says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now for Christians or anyone who's even remotely aware of Christian practices, baptism is a normal part of what we do. When people make their faith in Jesus public and they want to be identified as a member of Christ's church, they go under the waters in imitation of Christ's death, a picture of them dying to sin, and they're brought out of the water in imitation of Christ's resurrection, brought into a new life, clothed in Christ's righteousness that has been purchased for them through Jesus's sacrifice at the cross. You know, baptism at this point in history, it has none of those connotations. Jesus hadn't died yet. 
In fact, baptism is not a practice that is found in the Old Testament scriptures at all. There are many different kinds of ceremonial washings and cleansings. They're a normal part of Jewish life and uh, ceremonial temple practices, but they wouldn't have been called baptism. A baptism as a Jewish practice, it exists in a time period between the Old and the New Testaments, and, and it's primarily a cleansing ritual following circumcision for someone who's converting uh, to Judaism from another religion. It's an initiation into a new faith. It's a bath for an unclean Gentile before they can become Jewish. And John's baptism is different because it's not the washing of the body, but the cleansing of the heart that he has in mind. Because as John is given God's spirit and God's word, he knows that there is only one response, repentance, a real change in direction and affection. Now, some good news for us here today is that God's spirit is still at work and God's word is still speaking to us. John had the Holy Spirit and the word of God, and as Christians, we do too. And John, filled with the Holy Spirit, was calling the hearts of the people to repent. He was calling them to prepare their hearts for the good news of Jesus. And now we have the good news of Jesus. And now that Jesus has accomplished salvation for us through the shedding of his blood in our place, the same Holy Spirit that cried out through John now causes our eyes to be opened and see our need for a Savior. The same Holy Spirit causes us to understand the Scriptures and how our sins separated us from God. That same Holy Spirit causes us to rightly see Jesus as our only hope and enables us to turn from sin and turn to God and turn to Christ through uh, both Uh, repentance and daily confession. And the word and spirit that John the Baptist had, it's ours. And through them, we rightly see our sin and our need for a savior. You know, repentance is the first step that we take towards God when we come to faith. As it says in Mark 1, 15, as we sang earlier this morning, we repent and believe. We have to rightly see the stain on our hearts before we can come to Jesus for cleansing. Repentance is the first step we take towards God when we come to faith. And it's important that we don't misunderstand repentance. Repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. And this is our second point for today. God's salvation is for those who repent of their sin And repentance is comprehensive, life-changing, and visible. As we pick up in the passage, Luke brings in Isaiah's prophecy regarding John the Baptist. Luke 3, verses 3 through 6. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. 
And every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You know, John went out and he proclaimed a message of repentance. He went out as it was written in Isaiah. And so John calls people to repent, but it's Isaiah that helps us know what it means to repent. Look at the language that he uses. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain made low. The crooked become straight. The rough places level. Think about it. When, when the valley's filled, it's not a valley anymore. When the mountains are made low, they're not mountains for the valley to be filled, it is so comprehensively changed, so fully changed that it ceases to be a valley. In Ephesians, we're given a powerful example of what repentance looks like in the life of a person. Ephesians 4, verse 28, says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. For the thief to repent, they not only stop stealing, they become generous. That's what it means for the thief. The thief becomes generous. He was stealing, but now he's giving. What else could this look like? Well, the person who physically abuses people, they would not just stop hitting. They would change so completely that they're characterized and known by their gentleness. It's like liars becoming truth advocates. It's like those who have used people in the past begin to serve people. Those who have dishonored God worship him. When we repent of our sin and turn to Christ, a change has been made. And if a change has not been made, we have not repented. Now there will still be daily sin and daily confession. Uh, biblically, repentance is seen and talked about as more of an overarching transformation of trajectory than a response to every sin. But for besetting sin, sin that habitually dominates us and has convinced us to hopelessly expect it as inevitable. For these sins, we should seek repentance. So here's a serious question. Are there areas in your life where you sin without sorrow? If there's an area of your life where the answer to that question is yes, then repentance is necessary and right and good for the believer and the non-believer. If you're here today and not a believer in the gospel, in the salvation that Jesus Christ offers, and you look at your life and you see valleys of sin and despair that you could fall into and never return from, or mountains of sin that are towering above you and you're just waiting for them to fall, 
Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the middle of desperation and fear, that's when God shows his love for us. He is faithful and he is able to forgive, able to make the crooked straight, able to make the rough path level. No one is too far gone. You don't need to trust in your ability to make this change happen. You already know that you can't. Instead, trust in God and listen to the voice that's crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord in repentance. Are you willing to be converted and for your life to change? If you've never come to Jesus in faith before, the way to come is repentance. Seeing the trajectory of your life and by God's grace, turning around and starting over, becoming what Jesus calls born again. If this is you today, myself, or any of the pastors here would love to talk with you. If you came here with somebody, they would love to talk with you. At the end of Luke's quotation from Isaiah, it says, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's Jesus. God's salvation is not hidden from us. It's found in Jesus We cannot think of John's baptism of repentance without Jesus. In fact, between the end of today's passage and when Jesus is on the scene, uh, there are only six verses between our text here today and when Jesus comes. John prepares the way for Jesus with his preaching and his baptism. And then Jesus is here. (laughs) John's goal is to point people to the salvation of God because he knows a life of following the Savior, following Jesus, it bears fruit of repentance. He's tilling the soil for Jesus to plant. And this brings us to our last point for today. That God's salvation is for those who repent of their sin and repentance is humbling and prepares us for life in Christ's kingdom. Uh, from Luke 3, verses 7 to 14. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children from, for Abraham And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So repentance is humbling, prepares us for life in Christ's kingdom. In the rest of our text today, uh, we see the responses of two different kinds of people that engage with John the Baptist and his message. People who think they have answers 
and people who know they don't. Have you ever been around somebody who like confidently pronounces a common word incorrectly and they do it often? <laughs> and now I'm originally from New York City and so I grew up with a lot of these things uh, when people say espresso versus espresso or supposedly versus supposedly or irregardless, not a word, versus regardless. And these are so funny to me. Like I grew up with people saying these all the time thinking that I was the crazy one. And uh, sometimes these wrong pronunciations are so entrenched in the culture that you have to say them in order to be understood by other people. Uh, if I went to the deli, I needed to ask for uh, fresh mozzarella instead of mozzarella cheese. Uh, if I went to a restaurant, I had to order fried galamade instead of fried calamari. Big difference, guys. Um, and there was no arguing with people as to whether or not who was right. I was wrong. I'm not, but I was. Um, it's comical, right? But it's also tragic to be around somebody who's so consistently wrong about something while they're convinced that they're right. And in this, this last section of our passage, John encounters a group of people that are like that. But he's, he's you know, John the Baptist, so he's a little stronger. He calls them a brood of vipers. Uh, in Matthew's account in this altercation, he identifies this group as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It says that in Matthew chapter 3. So what did this group of people, what did they get so tragically wrong? Well, these are people that refuse to be humbled. They are so wrong in the things that they say, yet they're too prideful to respond to correction. They think that because they are of the line of Abraham, Abraham's children, that John's message, it doesn't really apply to them. And if you know anything about this group of people in the Bible, they are people who wanted everyone to know how good they were, how holy they were. They always showed up at the right places and sat in the right seats for the sake of being noticed. And even now, they show up to be baptized by John, but not because they think they need cleaning. They show up to the new spiritual ritual to make everyone else think that they're the cleanest. So the people who are convinced that they don't need a cleaning are standing in line for a baptism so that everyone around them will think that they're clean. That's what the situation is. So when John says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's exposing their charade. No one warned them. They don't think that any wrath is coming for them. Their faith is in Abraham's righteousness back in the day. So it doesn't really matter what their hearts are like before God now. These people have put all of their faith in Abraham being their father. And they have not honored God as their father. In the Old Testament does not often use the title Father to refer to God. We take it for granted on this side of Jesus' ministry. However, if we look back at Isaiah, there are two very important texts. Isaiah 63, verses 16 through 17 says, You 
are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. And Isaiah 64, verses 8 through 9, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. When it comes to our sin, our repentance, and God's redemption, even the prophet Isaiah, whose text these very religious people would know well, even Isaiah says that it's more important to relate to God as the father that we have sinned against than to point to Abraham simply as the father of a nation. The state of our hearts before God is personal. We don't inherit it. This is humbling for the Pharisees, but it's humbling for us too. It means that we're responsible. On one side, it means that it doesn't matter how good your parents were or if they brought you to church every Sunday. You will not be right with God simply because your parents were. And on the other side, it gives great hope. It doesn't matter what kind of brokenness you have come from or experienced. Lots of people have messed up families and upbringings. Bad stuff, evil stuff in their rear view. It does not define you. It does not define your relationship to God. If your heart is right before God through Jesus, there is no shackle of personal history that can keep you from his grasp. You are his. As we finish up our passage, we see that there is a second group of people in the crowd. And they've gathered to see what John the Baptist is doing in the wilderness. These are the people that know that they don't have answers. In Luke 3, verses 10 through 14, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Now, if you spend any time uh, counseling people or discipling people, you will most likely encounter a moment where you are asked, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. This is what people say when they know that something is really, really wrong and they think that you might have the answer. And in three different instances, we see the crowd respond to John's message. And John's uh, encounter with the prideful, uh, well, they see uh, uh, John's encounter with the prideful religious leaders and they're thinking, if the ax is coming for them, well, I'm a goner. John, just tell me what to do. And John, filled with the Holy Spirit, he uniquely ministers truth to each group in the crowd who wants to change. And John, who helps people prepare to meet Jesus through repentance, he shows each group what repentance will look like for them. 
As we saw before in Ephesians 4:28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. For the thief, repentance looks like becoming generous. And this same idea comes back in three different ways. A crowd of people with more than enough is told to share with those who don't. Tax collectors who were hated because they got rich through Rome's power and their own people's misery, they were told to do their job honestly, not take advantage of people. And lastly, a group of Jewish soldiers, think local police, they are told to be content with what they have so that they might not sin against the people that they've been tasked with keeping the peace for, using their authority to take and extort from others. And in all these cases, John's command is really straightforward, and it's simple. And yet he's not simply correcting uh, actions, he's exposing the hearts of the crowd at the point of their specific weakness. He speaks to the ways that each group in the crowd is uniquely positioned to break the second commandment that Jesus will tell us about. Love your neighbor as yourself. And priests called people to sacrifice uh, something else for the removal of their sins. But John is calling people to sacrifice themselves. Many in his day looked at John the Baptist like he was a jester, a joke out in the wilderness wearing camel's hair, eating locusts. But John isn't the jester of the king. He's the herald. And as he calls people to repent, he's preparing them to meet the king, to serve the king, and to live in the kingdom. Our actions need to be changed for sure, but God looks at the heart. We don't just need to do better, we need our hearts transformed. And John helps the crowds realize this truth, and Jesus showed them and us the way. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And we're going to close here in just a minute. But I have a couple of of questions for us to think about. Are you preparing to live in God's kingdom? Do you see your need for repentance? Or do you sin without sorrow? If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, ask yourself honestly, is your life changing in response to the gospel? Or have you become a creature of habit when it comes to ignoring sin. Every time we sin, it's because we believe that our plan is better than God's, that our sin will satisfy us or make things right or provide security or bring us comfort, and it won't. Only a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus will do that. But to have a good relationship with someone requires honesty, about where things are. So how are things between you and God?
If things aren't where you want them to be, think today about what might need to change. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. Yes, real change is too difficult to uh, make happen on our own, but we are not on our own. John the Baptist, he called people to repent before the good news of Jesus was truly understood. People responded because of a promise that was made that a savior would come. How much more should we respond in light of the promise that was kept? Let's pray together. Uh, Father God, uh, Lord, we thank you that repentance is a gift because even approaching you uh, in sorrows over our sin, that's something that is too difficult for us. So God, we need your help. Lord, if there uh, are areas in our life that are not surrendered to you, we need your help, we need your grace. Lord, we know that in your word it says that you are faithful and just to forgive our sins. So God, all of our confidence is in you. All of our hope is in you. Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, conform us more and more each